Thank you, dear Lord, for another Sunday together with your dear saints to worship and to open the scriptures and to encourage one another and to discuss our mutual salvation. Dear Lord, we pray for the ones that listen on the Internet around the world that you would bless them, take care of their needs, help them find other saints to uh, gather with around the means of grace. And we send our blessings to them, and we ask you for wisdom and understanding as we open up your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in a section here, and we're pushing forward so that we get one verse done a week because there's so much to discuss on this idea of separation. I don't know that I've ever seen a topic, as long as we've been having Sunday school discussions, that has more applications or more possible interpretations of how, how it might be applied or even misapplied. And so that topic is just exactly what does God want, what does he want us to separate from, and what, what are we not supposed to separate from. And so far, for those of you who weren't here the last three weeks, it wasn't so hard determining what the issue was in Corinth. That was probably the easiest thing to do. By reading through parts of 1 Corinthians and then also 2 Corinthians, we determined that the issue in Corinth from which what they were to separate from was pagan idolatry. And that included uh, participating in pagan uh, cult meals that were where the uh, food was offered to idols and immorality because immorality was actually a part of their religious practices in the ancient uh, Mediterranean, especially Asia Minor and Greece and so on. There was a lot of immorality. And you could see that from 1 Corinthians, what Paul told them that they needed to change and how he severely warned them. Also in 1 Corinthians 10, which is an important text to help us understand uh, 2 Corinthians 6, in 1 Corinthians 10, they were warned about being fellowshipping or sharers with demons, okay? And by, by looking at the Lord's Supper and how we have koinonia, we have fellowship together at the Lord's Supper when we eat and drink the commemorative meal about the Lord's death and the Lord's uh, resurrection, in his in the future coming, they they were warned that they can't have fellowship with the Lord and then go over to the pagan cult and share in the pagan meal and have fellowship with the demons. That there was an incompatibility there. Okay, so that one was clear enough. And then we've covered topic after topic on uh, possible applications. Now let's look at verse 16 today. I want to get this verse understood and then we can have some more discussion. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, it says here, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and I and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, now there is the analogy of the temple, okay? And the temple of God here is the corporate church. 
it's uh, we in 2 Corinthians 6.16 is plural. So the gathered church is considered the temple of God. God is dwelling in his people and in their midst, and they are the temple of God. And this temple cannot be put together with idols because it would be an incongruity that there would be idols in the temple of God. Cheryl. Um, Something that just comes to my mind is that since we are the temple of God and God dwells within us, And he says in his word that he is a jealous God. So therefore, he will not share his glory with that of the devil or any of his demons. Good. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, by the way, sometimes the the, the individual Christian is considered a temple. And that's taught in 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, singular, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit in the same context that we shouldn't be joined with uh, immorality or, or idols or demons or what have you. That's in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Here is plural. So it's true that the individual Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the sense Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's also true that corporately the gathered church of believers is, plural, the temple of the Holy Spirit as well. Okay? Now, the incongruity would be to be involved with any sort of idolatry. Now, it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, when it talks about the conversion of the Thessalonians that they turned from idols to serve the living God. They turned and served. So this that's a good uh, way to understand repentance. Turning from idols, an idol being whatever it was that we were, was more important to us than the Lord himself. Uh, okay. Um, I was just trying to um, understand or explain um, that when you say we should not, what you're saying, that we should not be with them, meaning that in their pagan um, practices, that means we should not participate or practice what they practice, right? Exactly. We, or do what they do. Just right. keep doing as God wants us well, to yeah, do, Yeah, we right? need, our lives need to be free from idolatry mm-hmm. and whatever we were serving before we came to serve God, we can't serve anymore. And and you can kind of summarize it as uh, the self, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, yes. I think well, this passage here is really was really core when the Reformation came in talking about the Catholic Church relative to what the God had intended, because of the icons that they were using, and especially the Mass when the bread becomes Christ and you worship the, the host or the the bread during communion. It uh, was very much an idolatry. Luther looked at it as an, as, as an idolatrous practice and still looks at, you know, we look at it as an idolatrous practice. So it still is valid today when you look at a, the Catholic Church as they practice what their Mass is. 
Yes, that's, I think that's a valid implication. The term agreement here is a verb that comes from the Septuagint of Exodus 23.33. You want to go ahead, Robert, and look up Exodus 23.33? And it, it can mean a pact or to work out a, a joint agreement. So what kind of a pact or a joint agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And the rhetorical question has the implied answer, none whatsoever. So he draws a conclusion from his own rhetorical question, what agreement does the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple. So that's a conclusion drawn from that. So what does it say in Exodus 23:33? They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay, so that would be the context of when they go into the land, they're not to make a pact or an agreement with the other uh, people, the Canaanite religions. Yeah, it says in verse 32 that you shall make no covenant with them nor okay. with their gods. Then sometimes the Septuagint has a numbering system different, so that's probably the one where the verb came from. Okay, so you can't make it a deal. You can't make an agreement. So as they go into Canaan, the, the situation in Canaan is going to be very similar to the situation later in Corinth. All right? Because in Canaan, the, the pagan religions were full of idolatry and immorality. They had these fertility cults and these immoral practices, and they had these... Um, uh, you know, temple prostitution and so on going on. And so it was very important that the Israelites just absolutely stayed away from that because it would be a snare. And if they fell into those practices, it would turn God against them. Now, remember how ba- what Balaam did in this regard? Remember Balaam? Balaam was hired by Balak to curse Israel. All right? And he couldn't do it because, well, first of all, the donkey. Remember the story? And then, and then, and then, and so God said, "Okay, you can't say anything, but what I give you to say." Is, but he still was greedy for the, for the money for the to be paid for his divination. But every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel, a blessing came out. And he, in fact, prophesied about Messiah. But according to Revelation. Later, and this isn't recorded in the Old Testament, but the New Testament said that this happened, that he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the, the children of Israel. And let, let's look that up because it's, a, it's the same issue as what we're talking about here. That's in Revelation 2, is it? It was in the same context, and it was happening again here in the New Testament. Uh, there it is. Revelation 2 and verse, we'll start with verse 12. It's the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But then he says this, but I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things offered to idols and commit acts of immorality. Okay? So the same issue. And so Balaam, who's a false prophet, condemned throughout the Scriptures, told Balak, I can't curse Israel for you because if God blesses them, I can't reverse it. Remember, he said, I can't reverse it. But I know how you can curse Israel. Teach them to rebel against the covenant and to do the kind of pagan religious practices that you do, and they'll curse themselves because they have a covenant with God. And then they'll come under God's curse. And that's what it says. Yes. Numbers, Numbers 31, 16 says, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, so that plague came among them. No, so okay, it is there. So it's there, and then they end up killing the women, and they kill Balaam. Okay. They find Balaam there, and he'd take... So he, even oh, though he's he right. they kill him too. Yeah, so Balaam came to a bad demise. Because of his own advice. And so Balaam was a false prophet. And evidently in these churches in Asia Minor, where Pergamum was in Asia Minor, there were Christians who believed they had the liberty to go down to the pagan worship services and participate in immorality that was being practiced under the guise of religion. All right, that's, that's, that was what the issue was. Now, let's get this verse here. So what agreement or pact does the temple have with idols? None, it should be, is the implied answer. We are the temple. So God has promised, his covenant promise is, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my, co- my people. Now, uh, you don't have a Bible, Carla? Uh, Alice, could you look up Leviticus 26, 11, and 12? This phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people, is a covenant formula out of the Old Testament. And it's one of the key covenant promises that God would have a people and he would be a God for a people. And that was something different than the pagans' typical conception of their deities. The polytheistic pagans figured they had a God for a territory. And that if you went from one territory to another, you had to honor some different God. Yes? I don't have the verse in front of me. But anyway, it's uh, what you call it, where God says in the beginning, I'm going to write the uh, prophecy from the beginning to the end, so you'll know my word is true when it uh-huh. comes to pass. Uh-huh. At that same time, he says, I'm a jealous God. Uh-huh. He says, I'm not jealous because of the idols. I can, you know, don't stop that, but when you follow an idol... You're following a false god, and you're going to die. Yes. And I'm going to give you life. And that's the reason he's... Uh, you know. That's exactly right. And, and so God is a jealous God. God made a covenant with the people. And, and the analogy, not only were there acts of immorality done in the name of pagan deities, but uh, uh, by analogy, Israel being unfaithful to God was called playing the harlot. Because then since they were married to God. Okay, now we have Leviticus 26. What did I say here? 11 and 12. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, yes. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Okay, that's the covenant promise. And you find that in, in Revelation at the very end. 
um, I believe. Go ahead, uh, Cheryl, and I'll find Revelation. Um, I have a question. Um, granted, we aren't to mingle. I mean, we aren't to do any of the things that um, smack of of idolatry or any kind of immorality. But how do we reach the people who are in these evil practices with the gospel if we don't mingle with them? Okay. That's kind of, I, think he, yeah, I think you're not understanding. He said uh, we cannot practice what they practice or yeah. do what they, you know, do what they do. Um, yeah, we can't. Well, and I, oh, I understand what she means. Or you know, not yeah. linger, not hang around them, or nothing like that. It's just when you have that opportunity to yeah. minister, then you minister. Yeah, that, we talked about that in the last few weeks. And well, let me uh, kind of give a summary of our several, last several discussions. What we're saying is that we're separating from idolatry and from immorality, but we're not separating as a isolated people that doesn't mingle with anybody but each other. All right? In other words, Christianity is not an isolationist religion. Unlike that group down in Texas that was in the paper. You know, they got they put up walls and they all go in there and, and of course they're doing evil practices there in their own in the guise of religion. But Christianity is about people being salt and light. Okay? And as I pointed out before, when the Lord, uh, under the new covenant, removed the food laws and the strict Sabbath observance law and circumcision, the purpose of removing those was so that Christianity would spread through the nations and not just stay in Jerusalem. Okay? And so we can go anywhere. We're not to say, I won't associate with any people that aren't just like me or somebody that's a known idolater you can be friends with on a business level or a personal level and that's how the gospel spread most as i said before most people if you talk to people about and listen to their testimony most of the time you hear from people who became a christian through the witness of another christian Sometimes it's, in, you know, at a formal meeting or they'll, in a church service where the gospel's preached or at an evangelistic crusade. There's things like that happening. But a lot of people are saved just because they were working with a Christian who shared the gospel with them. And so the Lord wants to use every one of us in that way to be, you know, salt and light and bringing the light of the gospel to the people around us and not to isolate um, I don't think God really wants us to be like friend friends with him in a way whereas we, um, where we overlook the fact of what God has to, to say. I think God wants us to be nice to him and stuff like that. But do not try to always throw in their face or whatever their immorality is or their um, idolatry where they're not uh, trusting in God wholeheartedly and totally believing in God. But we're supposed to let them know that we have boundaries and whatever that it is that they believe in and, and practice uh, around the, you know, throughout the world is not what we, um, uh, is what, is not the way we think and feel about life. But long as they try, what I'm trying to say is like, 
long as they don't try to impose their their beliefs and their practices on us, then we could sort of like keep it at a, uh, um, I guess a peaceful tone. Okay. You so so to say, right? Yeah, you can you can have you can get along with people and even work together in a business project or something like that. I believe, but we uh, we have to be Christians in, in our beliefs and our behavior. Okay. I, I am openly Christian in my workplace, and uh, yes, uh, by are. that I mean... <laughs> we know. <laughs> and by that I mean that I work with many people of many beliefs, including quite a few Muslim women and young gentlemen, and they know that I'm a Christian, and that I believe Jesus is the Lord. Amen. And I don't, they, they know that's the <laughs> distinction that I, I have. I know, I appreciate that, Gretchen. I came in one day and she came over and said, Oh, Pastor Bob gave me a big hug and then <laughs> said, said to everybody, This is my pastor. <laughs> well, I'm proud to know you. <laughs> Thank Anyhow, you, <laughs> what I do with these true friends of mine is that um, they wish me Merry Christmas, Happy Easter, all these things. But they tell me I honor their boundaries so far as courtesy. Yesterday I learned that a Muslim lady couldn't ask, borrow something from me without asking for it first. I'm not saying that in support of Islam, goodness okay. knows. But I am saying I let them show their virtues, and that by that I show my love. Okay. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. Uh, I was going to quote from uh, Barnett. I keep forgetting this guy is Burnett or Barnett. There's one of each. This is Barnett. He says this, There's no possible union. The word there, we're looking at uh, verse 16. This word uh, translated in New American Standard as agreement. There's no possible union between these entities. This rhetorical antithesis is the climax of the four preceding questions, making clear their meaning and explaining the nature of the forbidden yoke with unbelievers. Verse 14. Under the old covenant, the temple of God was the sanctuary of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who by his very name and commandment forbade making and worshiping idols. Under the new covenant... However, the temple of God is the congregation of holy ones, saints, that is, us, those who set, uh, those set apart to God in Jesus Christ and made so by God's indwelling presence, the Holy Spirit. Just as it was inconceivable that idols should be brought into the temple of Yahweh, so under the new dis- dispensation it's impossible for the temple of God, the members of the holy congregation of God, to go to or share in the cultic worship of idols in Gentile Corinth. Idolatry and the fornication, casual or cultic, with which it is often associated, were utterly abhorrent to Paul. Believers have no direct association with them. To return to idolatry or to fail to disengage from it would be to receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 6 1. Yes. One thing, there's an application here. Because Paul says in a different place that greed is idolatry and serving, serving money or even working 
and, and pursuing the pursuing wealth for the sake of wealth and, and for for greed is serving an idolatrous. Uh, you're making a god out of money. So I think that as we work and we go to work uh, because God has commanded us to work and to make money and provide for ourselves and have something to share with those in need, the big difference when we go to work should be that we're serving our employer as unto the Lord. The Bible best we know how. It doesn't mean we don't make dumb mistakes because we're not flawless, but we're doing it out of reverence to God, whereas we're pursuing this this goal with non-Christians who are doing it out of greed and in an idolatrous fashion. I think that that, that whole paradigm really is is visible at work for a lot of what, what we yeah, do. It, and it also, it, I think motives can be revealed by what people are willing to do at work. All right? If, if someone has got the... I was just reading... Well, you know, we've had a lot of scandals now because of unscrupulous businessmen and these mortgage, you know, they had this scheme. There was just a company that had scammed like 160 properties in North Minneapolis. That was in the paper. Um, a Christian is not in business like it was uh, uh, who wins, okay, and who who has to get ahead because that's the only goal in life. So a Christian will work hard and may be rewarded for working hard, but but what's more important to us is to honor God than to quote win. All right? And 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 in order to win, if we have to do something unethical, we just can't do it. Our consciences will not let us do unethical things in a business world, even if it costs us, and even if we're competing with people whose hands aren't tied by the rules. Okay? And, yes. And kind of that's what I'm I was saying if, if other people are cheating, that doesn't give us the prerogative to cheat. And moreover, when we're talking about being Christian, I'm not hired by my employer to share my religious views. I'm hired my, by my employer to work hard. And as I work hard and I do my level best to further the benefit of the corporation and the business I'm with, on my own time, I can share what I want to. But they're not paying me to be a Christian. They're paying me to be a hard worker. And to the extent that I honor that, that pledge and I honor their trust in that, I'm fulfilling what God has done for me. In the same way Daniel, he, when he was serving the king of Babylon, the level best, his enemies, who were very close to him, couldn't find one thing to fault him with. And I wish that would be true of me. <laughs> That's a good goal, Keith. I think in the workplace, uh, you hear this problem. Quite often, they, people will complain that Christians, you know, they, they want to witness that work, but they don't want to work hard. I think to glorify God, when we're on the job, I think we need to do everything with excellence and to work hard. And uh, that, that in itself will testify a lot more than words. And that does give you opportunity um, for to, pre- to present the gospel at later times. But if, if we're at work slacking off, and, you know, what kind of witness is that? So uh, I've heard that a lot of times. That, there's uh, loudmouth Christians that are got a lot to say, but their actions don't live up to it, and it just that does not help the gospel. Yeah, Dick has a story about that too, doesn't he? If your breath doesn't match your talk, you might as well just close your mouth. <laughs> Cheryl says, "If your walk doesn't match your talk, close your mouth." 
I, I think that what a lot of unbelievers should also what should understand is that they have to work too. And just because we are uh, the ones who trust in God and believe in God wholeheartedly and work and do our work unto the Lord, that doesn't mean that they're supposed to waste what they have, whatever they work for, and then think they're supposed to ask us because we are we trust in God or believers in God. But you know, you know, you understand what I'm saying. And then also, I feel like uh, that they, you know, regardless, even, even though we will put forth and do the best we can at our work performance because we know what our job duties are, that don't mean they're supposed to slack and think we're supposed to do more than what they're supposed to do. <laughs> just because I encounter things like that, you know, and I'm like, that's not appropriate. You know, you can't look at me just because I trust in God and believe in God and think you are supposed to be under your rule of thumb because that's not so. Okay, turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33. Let's look at a, a story of a guy who uh, decided to bring idols into the temple of God. Famous guy by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. It says here, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So there's the very thing we read in Exodus they're not supposed to do. All right? Don't copy the practices of the pagans that were dwelling in Canaan. But he did it. Verse 3, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. That's where they went and did their idolatry. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all of the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he not only was... He wasn't satisfied just to go out with the pagans in their high places and their asherim. He actually brought pagan idols into the house of the Lord. Yep, it was really bad, really bad. And then it says here in verse 6, And he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Anybody heard of that before? The valley of Ben-Hinnom? That's where the word for hell comes from. Gehenna comes from this Hinnon where they burnt children. And, and it was a garbage dump and burning bodies and it was a terrible, wicked place. So that actually becomes the name for hell. So, there, so it says here, He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft. Listen to this. He used divination practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So this Manasseh wanted to be in contact with the spirits using the techniques that were available to contact the spirit world. And that's what he did. Now, look at this. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, which God said to David and Solomon, 
in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, put my name forever. And I will never again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I commanded them, all the law, statutes, ordinance according to me. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. But you know um, what happened? What happened to Manasseh? Well, the, the staggering thing is Manasseh, God takes him away and he repents. Uh-huh. He's, the, he's in part of the lineage of Christ himself. Uh-huh. He's there where the lineage goes through. And he's an example that God can raise up a leader who's wicked and nasty. He reigns for 55 years and he leads all of Israel astray. And Israel continues on their path towards idolatry, and God plucks out Manasseh and saves him anyway. Yes, great story. That, that's what goes on here. And starting in verse 12, it says, And he was, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You know, some of you may have wayward children. Maybe you have relatives that are doing evil and are so hard-hearted and they're doing so badly that you just imagine it's even possible that it could change. Take heart. God can save Manasseh at the end of his life. He can save anybody. I was talking to my son Drew the other day and we were talking about the prodigal son. And... You know, I don't know this from the scripture, but I just wonder if the the dad uh, might have been a prodigal son himself who turned back to the Lord. You know, you just look at that as far as because he had he had a hope, he had a he had a compassion, and to me that was, I mean, and and where it came into context for me is, uh, I'm a prodigal son and my son's a prodigal son, and we are now very close and very much in the Lord, but we both had a journey that brought us away from the Lord. So, yep. you know, I just, I just wonder about that a little bit. You never know. The Lord is compassionate and his arms are outstretched. Um, it, sa- it says also in here, he got rid of the foreign gods. This is what repentance looks like. He got rid of the Manasseh, got rid of the foreign gods, removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as the altars he built on the temple hill in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. He restored the, uh, the altar of the Lord, sacrificing fellowship offerings, thank offerings on it, and told Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. The people, however, now did not want to repent. They wouldn't listen to their king, Manasseh, who did repent. Now, here's um, an application I want to make. Now, there's a reason why... I went to the Manasseh story, which is a good cross-reference for what agreement does the temple have with idols. He brought idols into the temple. But it also said that he practiced spiritism and divination. We have people in so-called evangelical churches today who believe they have the right to practice divination in the church. And they believe that they can use the methods of the pagans to contact the true God of the Bible. And we've warned about this, and this is not new to anybody that's been to our Faith at Risk seminars, but I would say that this is a direct application. You cannot go and learn how the pagans serve their gods 
take their ideas into the church. Remember, the church is the temple of God, not the building, the people. And bring in the labyrinth, bring in the yoga, bring in the contemplative prayer, which is TM for Christians. And, and we cannot do this. And this is as wicked as anything Manasseh did. And if we think that God is going to countenance this, he will not. Now, what's going to happen? Yeah, maybe some leader might repent like Manasseh did. But repentance is necessary. Now, what will happen? What happens, I believe, isn't necessarily that all of a sudden every church that's practicing divination goes up in flames. What happens is God leaves. It's Ichabod. God will not be conjured up by any means of divination. And God leaves, and they get spirits talking to them in the name of God. And they don't know the difference. Okay, yes. I I have a question on this. Two churches ago, (laughs) I'm a nomad. Uh, Two churches ago, we had a sect of women that came into this church, and they uh, it just happened to be women, nothing against my own gender. And they would stand and speak stridently in tongues, and I don't remember what was the gist of the whole thing, but was that an entryway into divination? Well, there is a biblical gift of tongues, but... You know, I'd have to hear what they're teaching to tell whether it was bad or not. Okay? Um, I think a lot of times that's why they try to do that in some churches or whatever. Because they misunderstand it. They think that that is something God gifted them with. To to either, you know, to make money or something. Like you think, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I've, so, heard, I've heard meetings where they're I've shouting heard, like that. Yeah, too, I've heard. I've been in conferences where they say things like that, where they've said something like that. I so went to, I, actually, I went to a meeting. I used to be on the board of this ministry back in the 70s and 80s. And I walked into a meeting they were having, and there was about, you know, 100 or 200 people, and they were all screaming as loud as they could in unknown languages. And they just were doing that on and on and on and on and on and on. So I went to the director of the ministry. I said, what exactly is going on and what's being accomplished here? And has anybody ever read 1 Corinthians 14? And so they, yeah, it's... Uh, so, no, but I, the, I think the Services should be held in the languages that people understand. Right, that's overall <laughs> okay. what I was going to say. So for he us, should always try English. to make it clarify just what, God's, what God considers as gifts and talent that comes from his Holy Spirit and not just something that they, you know, conjured up somewhere. Yeah, exactly. All right, now back to our passage, Manasseh. Okay, I wanted to make that, impl- that application that divination is just as abominable to God now as it was when Manasseh did it. And God has spoken to us. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. No good gift has he withheld that we need. And if we stay within the boundaries drawn out in the Bible, we are not going to go straight. Okay, yes. I'm just going to close up with the concept of if we go to divination and the church brings divination in and looks to that instead of God, it ends up looking like Second Thessalonians 2, where God, because they did not love the truth, he gave them an energized seduction. He gave them a delusion so they believe what is false. And the reason he did that 
He gave them a, a delusion that they could believe in so that they would be judged and gathered together of all those, with all those who are going to be judged for their wickedness. Yep. In the same way he allowed, he saved Manasseh, but Israel now had an appetite for something that was illegal. Mm-hmm. And that appetite, no matter you had Josiah, who had other righteous kings come in, afterwards that appetite led them into Babylon and destruction. They wiped out the city, they killed the women, they killed the children, the few people that were left, they hauled off to Babylon. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when we have an appetite for things like mm-hmm. divination. Absolutely. And see, these uh, spirits are called seducing spirits. That's what they're called, seducing spirits. They're seductive in a very, very real way. And the experiences that people are gaining, they like, just like they did under Manasseh. And they'll keep going back for more because they get, like he said, they get an appetite for spirits. And they may call it God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but it's not if the gospel's not being proclaimed. Now, I, now I want to do some more applications here. Let me, let me do this one. This was emailed to me a while back, and I forgot to bring it up. We're going to talk about what we should separate from and in what case. This person says, My problem is in knowing that a false teacher is sharing a false message, proclaiming to be a Christian when it actually may not be, while a true believer shares a stage with them, knowing this false person is leading others into hell or into an area most dangerous. Okay, so the issue is, is it a sin to speak at a whatever, some kind of function with with speakers for whatever reason, if somebody else who's one of the speakers is a false teacher? He says no. Okay, what did you want to say, Catherine? I I, I had a question about palm readers. What category of divination? Palm readers? Do they they be it? category would you call that div- a palm, sorcery? A, a palm. palm reader is a practicer of divination. Divination? Yes, divination. Divination is a broad term. I don't term. think it would be... Oh, okay, okay let ahead. me explain what it is. Divination is a broad term for any, without regard to the process, because there's a thousand, I mean, there's unlimited number of ways you could practice divination, but without, without regard to the process, it's any means of gaining information that not, cannot be gained by our ordinary ways of knowing, okay? If, if it's not a scientific or whatever. Actually, water witching is divination. Did you know that? Water witching, you know, where they take the stick and they go out there and then it points down and that's where you drill a well. That is a method of divination. That's why they call it witching. Well, actually, I don't think it would be wrong to speak at a function just because someone else may be uh, a false religion or something like that. Okay. Uh, all you're doing is just... Speaking at a conference of whatever the conference may consist of, right? Okay. Keith? I think the key message issue is you can share a pulpit. Paul shared a pulpit with synagogues, and he didn't believe that most of the leaders of the synagogues he went to would wanted to stone him or kill him. So he was going to a time in a hostile environment and sharing the gospel with them. I think the issue is we can't change our message and dilute the gospel or obscure the gospel because we're sharing it in a hostile environment. And I don't think we can just lend our support as a blind endorsement of something just because we happen to be there. Preaching the gospel, saying this is what we believe, and this is inconsistent in, 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 in highlighting the, the differences, 
is, is, is valid. I'm, right now, I think I'm going to be preaching at a church that would be very hostile to some of the, or at least historically hostile to the issues that we're talking about. And as long as I go there and point, this is what the gospel is, this is what the gospel isn't, and Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and my sins, and together we can believe on him and escape the coming wrath, I think that's okay. Okay, that's Keith's opinion. That's, uh, yes. Oh, the Jewish temple is where they're supposed to worship. What if you went to a Buddhist temple or a New Age temple? I mean, you're not, that wouldn't really be right, would it? Uh, can you preach the true gospel in a Buddhist temple? It doesn't seem likely that they'd invite you. Uh, okay, let's talk about this. I, uh, Sam. I'm not responding to. I'm not responding to that. But I don't think they would let you anyway. Yeah. The Buddhist. But what I was going to read from is First Corinthians nine. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, nine nineteen through twenty one twenty three. Paul practice what he preaches. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Okay. So the true gospel could be preached a lot of different places. As I'd say we'd say that. Now, sometimes you don't know what to do on these multi-speaker events. Anyhow, it's very rare that you can agree with everybody on everything. I went out to one in California that I preached at, and I didn't agree with every other speaker on every point that they made. We were in general agreement. I think all of us believed in literal future Bible prophecy, or they wouldn't have been invited. And uh, there were some people there that I was really close to theologically and really loved, particularly this Mike Gendron. He was a wonderful brother. I was so glad to meet him. But... I, I don't know that you, where you preach the gospel is, is the big issue, as long as the gospel is preached. Okay, all right. That, that's how I see it. But now, but let's, take, let's take this a little bit further. There's been a lot, kind of an uproar lately when, um, who was it, Rob Bell and Doug Paget and the Dalai Lama had a conference? Did anybody read that? Yeah, I, I, I got an email on that. A Lama? Or was it the Dalai Lama? A Lama? <laughs> well, uh, anyhow, when my book comes out, when my book comes out, all, all of the chapters are written, and we're on the editing process now. And when the book comes out, I have a chapter that shows that there really isn't much incongruity because they're agreeing with Eastern philosophy. Anyhow, so it's not that they're there to preach the true gospel and the Dalai Lama is going to preach Eastern religion. The the inner spirituality is called where we're all going to work together and the world's going to be a better place. So the book, pray that we get get done. (laughs) Poor Dick. Dick is editing it. And he hates what these guys teach so much. It's painful. 
<laughs> That's like that time we were doing a radio show about those Latter-day Apostles. We're recording away, and they believe this, and they believe that, and I'm quoting these guys, you know. And then Dick finally goes, that's enough. I can't take anymore. <laughs> I don't even want to hear this. <laughs> it was so distasteful. I don't remember if we edited that out or not. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I think the important thing is if, if you're preaching the gospel, that's fine, but you don't want to participate in their evil deeds and, and bad theology. You know, give, give credence to that. Yeah, okay. Generally, what happens is you just don't get invited if you, if you speak up enough on different things. But if you were to go there, you, you, wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't participate with it. No, you definitely would not. Paul didn't become an immoral, an immoral to win the immoral. No, you didn't, yeah, good point. Paul didn't become immoral to win the immoral. Okay. Um, yeah. I, Friday night, I went to see this new movie out called Expelled. And it's all uh, Ben Stein as the person that put on the documentary. Um, and it's interesting because he really ties, you know, Darwinism and how Darwinism even, you know, how really, like you look at some of the key people in, in Hitler's time were Darwinists and how they degraded people. And when I think of a lot of this, like divination of that, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of it is degrading the value of people. And I, it's a very interesting movie. I would encourage, highly recommend people okay. look at it because it really brings up some very good issues. I yeah, think. I've read some reviews. Or I guess it's, it's pretty well done. Yeah. Um, Darwin is in, interesting. When this book is is finished, that we're working on, we're going to find some interesting links to uh, a certain philosopher by, by the name of Hegel, where all this stuff came from. And you may not have known this, but spiritual evolution was taught before Darwin. Hegel taught spiritual evolution before Darwin taught biological evolution. But what's the latest thing now is a combination of the two. And that's what the emergent church is based on. So just a little hint about what's coming out in my book. Scott here? Upstairs? Uh, does anybody know whether we're live with that forum yet? We're live. Is it advertised on the site yet? Okay. So I want to announce this. We have a new aspect of our web ministry that was created by uh, someone asking for it from another country. And what it is, it's a forum. And people, if you're listening, if you're one of the persons that listens to Twin City Fellowship Sunday School on the web, we have a forum, and, and it's designed... For you, it's, it's designed for people who listen to our sermons and, and pray for us, and we pray for them, and they just don't have fellowship wherever they may be in the world or even in the United States. And so um, those of you here can go on the forum. You have to sign up for it with just a uh, username and a password, and you can fellowship with people they may be scattered around the world. And if you're around the world, we invite you to sign up for the forum. And we're wanting to hook people up. I, I, what? I don't know. I had a link in an email. It's easy to find? It's on the website. Okay. Anyhow, I'm hoping this will work. And I think 
uh, people that, let's say you're isolated out there somewhere, your church went apostate, you don't have fellowship, you can go on the forum and there's people there. I, one of the things I hope that happens is people can pray for one another. Because the means of grace, what happens to people that lost their church to the apostasy is they lost their means of grace. And remember what we talk about here, uh, Ryan, uh, uh, Ryan and I, about fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, and the apostles' teaching and so on. So they're getting the teaching by downloading sermons and Sunday schools. But these other things like praying for one another and sharing the word together and asking questions about theology and helping each other understand the Bible is something I would like more people to be able to participate in, even if they're not right here. Okay, so that's what the forum is for. And so feel free to sign up. And I'm not sure. Uh, we have a bunch of volunteers that are helping with it here that uh, are savvy about those things. I don't know anything about it other than I, I've got a username and I'm, I'll have to show up and see what happens. Uh, we got four more minutes. Let's see. I got a couple more verses here. Oh, by the way, um, pray for Dick and Joanne. Joanne's uh, mother passed away, and you have a service on Tuesday, right? On Tuesday. Sam, Exodus, Exodus 29:45, and Norma, 1 Kings 18:21, and Jessica, Jeremiah 31:33. 3133. Okay? Exodus 29:45. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Yes, that's that's that whole idea. I will dwell in their midst and I will be their God. They'll be my people. I, I want to read a verse too. In Revelation, look at how Revelation ends. This is sort of a this is the covenant theme from Genesis to Revelation. The covenant theme is this. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look at how Revelation 21 is worded. Verse 3. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And then it says that he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. That's what God has in store for us. So, we're, no, you have to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, notice the already not yet. So in, in 2 Corinthians 6, our verse 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, Now he dwells in our midst, and we are the temple of God. But the not yet is going to be in the future in Revelation. Now he dwells in our midst, but we still have crying and pain and tears and sorrows. But then we won't have any of those things, and there will be no more death. Okay, Norma? 1 Kings 18:21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. <laughs> All right, decide who God is and whoever it is, follow him. And I don't think it's Baal. Okay, Jeremiah? Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So that is a covenant theme from Genesis, Exodus, Revelation, and in the new, in, in uh, Second Corinthians six, so we we made progress. We went a whole verse, and now we'll go to verse. Oh, there was another thing to discuss. Remind me next week. Somebody wanted us to discuss whether coming out and being separate means your kids can't go to the public school. I, I'm not gonna. All right, wait. I just want to get your mind working, and then next week we'll come and discuss it. (laughs) All right, God bless you.